I'd like to begin at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and we'll begin looking at those from last week. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Did anyone have their bosses fall out of their chair this last week when they came in and showed the demonstration of Christ's love to them? I hope not. I, I really think many of you have taken this to heart and have tried to exalt Christ in the workplace. But those were convicting words. And just the power, uh, the opportunity that lies in the secular workplace for a Christian believer, believing boss, or for an, an unbelieving boss that you have to show the power of Christ, show who he is, to protect the name of God that it not be blasphemed, or the gospel that it not be invalid. And that you have an opportunity to build up the church by building up other believers if your boss happens to be a believer. This morning we move further into this instruction from Paul. And as you look at the letter, you realize we're coming towards the end. And there's some things he wants to make clear. And as we have come across over and over again in the book of Timothy, um, these things are so practical. And, and they speak to us in ways that you cannot wiggle out from underneath. The end of chapter, or verse 2 reads, Teach and exhort these things. Teach these things, Paul says. I teach these things I'm writing to you, Timothy. And not only teach, but exhort, to urge, preach them. The word here is parakaleo, and it means to call near or to plead. Timothy is not just doing something that's instructional here. He is to cry out to the people that the very survival of this church in Ephesus depends on following God in these things that he is writing. Don't lose track of the context here. This letter is being written to a church that is in dire need. It is on the verge of perhaps spiritual collapse. And Timothy is there to build it up and to strengthen it. And to rescue it in some ways out of the hands of false teachers. This is an important letter and he's saying preach these things. Urge the people. Beg the believers to repent and grow and obey the word of God. And this command at the end of verse 2 fits like a hand in a glove with the next verse where Paul identifies the opposing false teachers. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, disdain for Christ's word marks the ungodly. Disdain for Christ's works. Who is the ungodly? Or who are the ungodly? This is the enemy assailing the church in Ephesus. The ungodly teacher is anyone who teaches otherwise. The word otherwise may seem sort of neutral, but it's the Greek word heterodoxeskaleo. It's a long word there. And it's made up of two words. Hetero, which means different, and didaskaleo, which means teach or instruct. Now that is important because hetero is the opposite of ortho. And you know what ortho means. Ortho means straight or upright or correct. 
We have an orthodontist. What does an orthodontist do? He makes your teeth straight. He makes them look pretty. You've got an orthopedic surgeon. An orthopedic surgeon. What does he do? He corrects the skeleton. He puts bones back in place and makes them straight. Orthodox is teaching that is also right and correct. Heterodox, which Paul is talking about here, is teaching that is not straight. It's not upright and it's not correct. Paul is exposing heterodox teachers. These false teachers, it says, refuse to consent. And literally means they refuse to take the side of or to come over to wholesome words. And wholesome there is a medical term. It means healthy. In other words, these false teachers teach what is unhealthy spiritually. Their teaching breeds spiritual disease. It's unhealthy what they teach breeds spiritual disease. Now, before I go further, I want to tell you that as you look at the scriptures, probably the most important thing you can do is it is written in James that the man who takes the word of God and looks at it as in a mirror and does what it says is the one who is blessed. He is the doer of the word. And when I look at these scriptures this morning, it grabs me and makes me think, be careful. You do not want to be one who teaches otherwise, Kent. Otherwise, other than what God intends to come from His Word. And, and it really does grip you because you think that, would, that is so easy to do. And I will confess, I'm sure I have done it at times. That's why the men who preach here want your prayers desperately. We do not want to in any way be in this camp that Paul is warning against. We want to humbly approach the Word of God. Seek Him with all our hearts so that we understand what He intends. Here Paul clarifies that these opponents, not are they just teaching otherwise, but they don't even agree with the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the title that Paul gives there. Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers don't even agree with our Master, Lord, Kurios. They don't agree with Jesus, the Savior. They don't agree with Christ, the Messiah. And they oppose teaching that leads men to the Gospel. This may include, and as I read these things, I want you to think carefully about what you've heard. Here, on the radio, and other places you've listened to preaching. This may include this otherwise teaching, questioning of God's omniscience. Does He really know? His omnipotence, does He really have all power? His omnipresence, is He literally, completely, everywhere at all times? Is God truly sovereign? Is, is He really a good God? Is he holy? Is he pure? The otherwise teachers may reject the Trinity. The Trinity of God saying that he cannot be one God in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me tell you that there are many groups who put the label of Christian on themselves and reject many of these doctrines. What is spoken, what is taught from the Word of God is essential. It is vital 
It is our filter. They may reject his sinless, perfect life. I have had so many people tell me. Jesus was a good man, probably the best, but nobody's perfect. And they will put that label onto Christ. His sinless perfection. His death as a substitute for his elect. Many people hate that doctrine. And we celebrated it this morning with the Lord's Supper. That our Christ would go on that cross. And take upon himself an accounting for my sin. My filth. My wretchedness. And he would literally be punished with the wrath of God that was destined for my sin. Many hate that doctrine. They will oppose his complete payment for their sin. That more is required for that sin to be taken care of. They may reject his resurrection from the dead. And his imminent future return to earth in victory. False teachers may attempt to weaken the authority of God's word. They may deny that it is the only infallible rule of the Christian faith. The scriptures are the only infallible rule of the Christian faith. All other, all other writings, traditions, and expressions are subject to the authority of the scriptures. But the strategy of these enemies is stealthy. If their tactics were obvious, there would be no need for Paul's persistent warnings. The teachers Paul warns about often float just a little bit under our radar. We don't detect it oftentimes. The teachers Paul warns about often speak in a convincing and amicable way. They write in such a way. And it captures the unwary. Scriptures can be twisted. They can be taken out of context. Appeals can be made to you and to me to be more compassionate, to be creative, to be tolerant, to be progressive, um, to, to be in moderation of these things. Don't take them so completely. And that can pull at the heart of the unsuspecting, especially when he or she is not aware that this is a spiritual assault. It is an attack upon the very Word of God, upon the person of Christ. Now we have several people this morning that we've prayed for because of sickness. When someone has the flu, you know it, don't you? Why? Because there are symptoms. Headache, congestion, nausea, soreness, a cough, a fever. I hope none of you are starting to feel that now as I'm suggesting that. <laughs> Headaches, or excuse me, measles, the symptoms of measles, it includes a rash on the skin. Mumps, they might manifest swollen glands here under, in your neck and underneath your ears. Disease has an impact on the body that is recognizable, has symptoms. Spiritual disease also has symptoms. A man who rejects Christ's word and the message of the gospel and who also teaches otherwise manifests the following symptoms according to Paul in verse 4. Look at that. The symptoms. He is proud. He's knowing nothing. But is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, 
and evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. What the ungodly is and does is demonstrated right here. He is proud, and look at this, this trilogy. He is proud, he knows nothing, and he is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. These three, pride, ignorance, and obsession, feed off of each other quite well. Pride. Some of your scriptures say conceit. It's, literally, it's literal meaning of conceit here is to be enveloped, puffed up in smoke. You're surrounded by smoke. Paul used it to describe a new believer lifted up with pride and then following into the, falling into the condemnation of the devil in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. These teachers are full of hot air or they are just blowing smoke. And Peter describes the same false teachers in his letter and he says they speak loud boasts of folly. The grave danger is not in their volume or how verbose they are. These types of teachers, says Peter, entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They put people in spiritual and eternal danger. Even though these proud men blow smoke and boast loudly, realistically, Paul says they know nothing. They boast, but they know nothing. And literally, that means not one thing. Romans 1 verse 22 says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 18 through 20 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Motivated by pride and to hide his ignorance of knowing nothing, this false teacher then is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. The NASB translates it as he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. The ESV says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrel about words. One commentator writes, false teachers do little more than quibble over terminology. They indulge in pseudo-intellectual theorizing rather than in productive study of and submission to God's Word. There is so much of that out there now. And with the, ad, the advantage or the opportunity of um, electronic media, of social media. Uh, anyone can be an expert and can set up a site and can be able to speak anything. And we see these kind of things coming everywhere. Such literal word battles can be very confusing. They can be manipulative and they can be intimidating. And why? Because the truth of Christ is no longer preeminent. The truth of Christ is no longer preeminent so these quarrels lead to actual heresy and a breakdown of faith. Why do I say that? Well, because John wrote in chapter 17, he says in Jesus' prayer, Sanctify them by your truth. 
Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. When the truth of Christ and His word are substituted with quarrels and controversy over terminology, then sanctification will not happen. Becoming like Christ will not happen through all of the arguments and battles over words. In place of the truth of Christ and the word of God, the heterodox teachers supply three conditions which I've mentioned. Pride, ignorance, and obsession with word controversy. This is like a deadly black mold growing in a dark, warm, wet environment. And you've seen it. I remember when we pulled off the, uh, some of the wall in our bathroom at a home we lived in. And behind that wall was this black mold everywhere. Because it was dark and it was moist and it was a warm location. Like a deadly black mold growing in this environment, pride, ignorance, and obsession with controversy incubate. And here's what Paul tells us they incubate. Envy. From this comes envy. It's a dissatisfaction with what you have and a covetousness toward what you do not have. It could very well be that these false teachers are actually envious of the effectiveness and respect that both Paul and Timothy received from the church. They're filled with envy. Secondly, they are filled with strife. This is a conflict. It's fighting with other people. Reviling. This is abusive language. Slander. Malicious talk. Then evil surmisings. Evil surmisings. Evil suspicions. I, I think I've shared before, but my wife and I... Uh, we talked about this often and we coined the phrase, and I've, I'm sure we got it from someone, the idea of assuming motives. Have you ever done that? You come into a, a room and you think, I think they're thinking that of me. Or I think the person sitting across the aisle over there, they must have seen that or, or had this opinion of me. Or why, they didn't talk to me this morning, so I think it's because of this. Or so-and-so didn't do this, so this has got to be, we're assuming these motives. That's a dangerous thing. The false teachers live on this. Everyone is against them. Out to get them. They are in a battle with each person. And it goes on to say, useless wranglings. The King James calls this perverse disputing. The NASB says, consistent friction between people. It is protracted and wearying discussion of men, says Wiest. Now, useless wranglings comes from a compound or two-part Greek word also. And I'm going to try to say this. It's paradiatribe. The second part of that word is where we get the English word diatribe. Useless wranglings translates into something like a very long, drawn-out, in-your-face, wear-you-out argument. A very long, drawn-out, in-your-face, wear-you-out argument. The participants in this in-your-face, wear-you-out dispute are men with corrupt minds or depraved minds. And they're destitute of the truth. It's as if these false teachers, teachers have been robbed of the truth. It's no longer there. This enemy of Christ, living in pride, ignorance, and obsession with arguments, resides in another black hole with no light of truth. He does not realize his condition 
But he would argue incessantly in your face if you tried to point it out. Romans 1.28 And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Romans 8.7 Because the mind set on the flesh, as these heterodox teachers are, it is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Not only will it not, but it is unable to do so. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. This is the category of the men that Paul is talking about and warning Timothy against. These heterodox instructors have been exposed to the truth. But nevertheless they oppose it. They have fallen into the most dreadful state a man or woman can know. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars which these teachers are doing it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. In Hebrews 10 verse 26 it says For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. But the worst of all this comes in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31. It's a well known scripture. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. What then motivates a heterodox teacher to argue and promote himself so strongly? Verse 5 goes on to say, Who supposes that godliness is a means of gain. That is why these men have taken this position. These Ephesian opponents are not the first to be motivated this way. Peter describes their ancient predecessor. In 2 Peter 2.15, he says, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Another, another by the name of Simon. He had the same misplaced desire for gain through ministry. Turn in your scriptures to Acts chapter 8. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Beginning with verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. 
You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That is the disease of these ungodly men, these false teachers. Now, in this case, they wanted to spend money to get power. In other cases, they want to have the power of the ministry to get money. But money is a very big part of this. Now, Paul, on the other hand, how did he approach these things? He talked to these Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, chapter 20, and here's what he said. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Then the scripture goes on to say, From such, from these kind of heterodox false teachers, withdraw yourself. From such, withdraw yourself. Now the phrase, from such, withdraw yourself, is contained only in the translations based upon the received text or textus receptus. It's in the King James and the New King James and a few others. It's not part of the text of the NASB or the ESV. But the intent of this verse, whether it's in your copy of the scriptures or not, is found again in verse 11 in all of our translations. There Paul begins to close this letter to Timothy and he sums up how the man or woman of God should respond to the false greedy teachers plaguing the church in Ephesus. And he writes, But you, O man of God, flee these things. It's the same idea. These misguided and evil teachers do not support the word of God. As Jesus once said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. These men are proud, ignorant, argumentative, divisive, word-twisting men. They are motivated by personal gain, not the glory of Christ. And they are a spiritual disease. Get away from them before you find yourself infected with their lies and confusions. Now these kinds of teachers are rampant again in our day and in every part of the world. They teach things you will never find in Scripture. And then at times they hack and they chop and they glue Scriptures together out of context to bolster their power and their bank accounts. They often speak smoothly and powerfully. Much of their message appeals to us. It appeals to our personal comforts and our desires. If you will buy their book, send in a faith contribution, or join their club, you are promised financial and spiritual success. If you are listening to these men and women, stop and remove yourself far from them. They are a spiritual disease that with further exposure may infect and sicken and even destroy you spiritually as well. The heterodox teachers are men and women not content with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want more, they create more. Movements And merchandise such as Jesus Calling, the Shack, the Prayer of Jabez, and many others are basically rooted in being discontent with Christ and His Word. They teach otherwise, 
as Paul describes. And if, if you have further questions about that, it would be good to talk about that. But you have to be on guard. Where do these things come from? What is behind them? Why do they say what they do? So where does Paul go from here? What is the opposite of false teachers who are discontent with the word of God and covet gain through a show of religion? Verse 6 is where we go. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. And this digs a little bit more into our own backyard. Contentment reveals the godly. The value of contentment. Well the word godliness speaks of likeness to God. Being like God in character. Being conformed to the image of God's Son is what is written in Romans 8.28. It is growing in godliness and it is great gain. It is also eternal and it cannot be taken away. It is a gift from God. The word contentment actually translates as self-sufficiency. Now that doesn't seem quite to comport with what we read in the scriptures. But the word in its origin meant self-sufficiency. To be content means to be satisfied and sufficient to seek nothing more than what one has, explained one pastor. Another writes, contentment is a sense of satisfaction that results from having what one desires or from not desiring more than what one has. Let me say that again. Contentment is a sense of satisfaction that results from having what one desires and from not desiring more than what one has. For the Christian man or woman, this contentment or self-sufficiency is rooted in the presence and adequacy of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Let me read that again. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Do we lack anything? We do not. Never. Anywhere. But why do we often struggle so much when it comes to contentment? Riken writes, A good deal of our discontent also comes from not being satisfied with Jesus himself. We want something more or something else. I have heard the following poem quoted, but I was still unable to find the specific author, so if someone knows this, you might tell me afterwards. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted. The presence of mind without limitation. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Discontent is life's burglar 
wrote one commentator. It robs every other experience of its God-given joy. Someone who is discontent is always operating at a loss. To know true contentment, it must be derived from Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are sufficient of ourselves. We are not. To think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. From imprisonment in Rome. Imprisonment in Rome. Paul writes, not that I speak in regard to need. For I have learned, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned. It's the second time he says that. I have learned. It didn't just happen. It isn't just like a gift of the Spirit that comes upon you in some way. Paul learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You have heard that verse so badly quoted in all sorts of contexts. But this is where it belongs. You can learn contentment in all things through Christ who strengthens you. Calvin wrote, Godliness is itself a sufficiently great gain to us because through it we become not only heirs of the world, but are enabled to enjoy Christ and all his riches. Let's go a little more personal. How can this be true? Paul goes in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The Greek text of verse 7 actually begins with the word nothing. And this gives greater emphasis to the condition by which we enter and leave this world. There's a strong likelihood that Paul was thinking back to the Old Testament hero, Job, who also said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5.15 sounds like a commentary on these two. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Moses recorded God's statement to the first man to ever live, Adam, in Genesis 3. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Isn't it interesting, and I hope very sobering, how clearly and repeatedly the Word of God emphasizes this truth. We know it, don't we? But we rarely stop to consider it. Even more rarely do we let it influence our decisions. I want you to do something hands-on here. If you've got one of those sheets with you, I want you to lay before you in the, uh, what do they call that? Not the portrait, but the, yeah, the landscape position. Thank you. And on the left-hand side, I want you in the top left-hand corner to write the word in, I-N, and underline it. And leave plenty of room underneath it. And then on the right-hand side, I want you to write the word out and underline it. And leave plenty of room underneath that. 
Now, it's very short, but for the next 30 seconds, I want you to list under the word in as many things as you actually were able to bring with you when you came into the world at birth. And on the right-hand side under out, in just 30 seconds, that's not a lot of time, but I want you to list all those things that you can picture yourself carrying with you when you leave this world. I know that's kind of silly. But if it makes you think about it for a little bit, it's worth it. So what is our target? What is enough and what is too much? Paul goes on and says this in verse 8. Having food and clothing with these shall be, we shall be content. Now the word for clothing literally means covering or a shelter. It can include both clothing or some sort of a shelter by which we cover and protect ourselves. But that's not much, is it? But that is all that's required for contentment. If this seems overly austere, wrote one scholar, it may be because we live in such an affluent society in which what some people mistake for the high cost of living is really the cost of high living. What some people mistake for the high cost of living is really the cost of high living. Stott wrote, For possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. It would be sensible, therefore, to travel light. Another wrote, Our society replaces people with things, conversation with entertainment. By so doing, we have lost the simple joys of life, which center on relationship, the essence of Christian fellowship. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, we read, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. And what do we need to flourish? Paul then again, in these last two verses, cautions against living for wealth. He looks at the other side of this coin. In verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Covetousness destroys the ungodly. This is a drowning snare. The covetous, the covetous are characterized by a desire to become wealthy. Now this desire is not just a flash of the moment. It's not saying that those are, who are wealthy, it is really focusing here on those who desire to be rich. What this does. Now there is some subjectivity to insert in this topic. What does this mean? But before we try to do that, let's look at Paul's answer to what is rich. Before we try to look at Paul's answer to what is rich, please look carefully. Look carefully and do not miss something here. These verses, 9 and 2, are grisly and they are horrific. These are warnings Paul makes to those who desire to be rich. Let us not be so offended or quick to justify ourselves that we miss Paul's desperate caution here. 
Paul writes the verb fall in verse 9 in the present tense, indicating that it is a continued, repeated falling. The man desiring riches will keep falling into a snare. It is a scene of gruesome violence. That's what he's talking about here. A snare is unseen, is it not? It catches its prey by complete surprise. The man who desires to be rich, he has no intention of falling into a snare. He grows comfortable with the accoutrements and the furnishings of wealth. A snare? When life is comfy and affluent, a snare is nowhere to be found. And that is why it works. The hidden deceptive snare captures and kills its victim. Paul writes that those who pursue riches fall into many, not just some, many foolish and harmful lusts. And what do these lusts do? More gruesome, grisly picture here. These lusts then drown their victim. These lusts that come from pursuing riches will submerge, drag to the bottom, and sink, plunge one to the depths. And these words here mean complete moral collapse and spiritual eternal destruction. They do that. Complete moral collapse and spiritual eternal destruction. This isn't me trying to to be woke or to be political or anything. This is what God's Word really says clearly. It's a gruesome situation. Achan's appetite for gold led to the defeat of Israel in battle and the execution of him and his entire family. Turn to James chapter 5. Beginning with verse 1. James 5 verses 1 through 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. And he does not resist you. In verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There is a root of evil in this love for money. Money itself is not evil. Money is morally neutral. It can be used and is used for many, many wonderful and godly purposes. Greed is not rooted in money, wrote one commentator but in the fallen nature of the human heart. Stata indicates from this verse that it is not for poverty against wealth, but for contentment against covetousness. And not all evil is literally from greed of money. 
Some sins are motivated by power. Some by sensual lust. And even more pervasively proud. Pride. But Paul's experience has been. And the spirit of God inspires the word. That love for money has demonstrated intense destructive power. Throughout the history of mankind. Where are you in this? We are prone to love money. Because it enables us to have more comforts. Or more opportunities. Or any number of selfish interests. And some of us. Some of us actually are more prone to love money. Because we may mistakenly believe. That if we surround ourselves with enough of it. We can make our future secure. Or the future of our loved ones more secure. You may be in one or the other. You may be crossing over back and forth or overlapped. But we all fight this. People whose lives are dominated by the love of money. Wrote one author. Spend their time pursuing what is locked into time and space. They ignore the things that have eternal value. End quote. The love of money for whatever reason we may tag on to it. Paul says, has caused some to even wander away from the faith in Christ. And then again, another vivid, violent picture here. And they have pierced themselves, pierced themselves with pangs of sorrow. That too is a very gruesome and pitiful end. Chrysostom wrote, desires are thorns. And as when one touches thorns, he gores his hand and gets him wounds. So he that falls into these lusts will be wounded by them and pierce his soul with griefs. In its most infamous and violent display, straying away from faith, even from Jesus Christ himself, it is portrayed at the end of the life of Judas Iscariot. Out of greed for 30 pieces of silver, that's the average price for a basic slave. He sold out the creator of the universe. The son of God. But that money could not satisfy. In the next scene you see him taking those 30 pieces of silver and throwing them on the temple floor. And he runs out and kills himself by hanging. The love of money destroyed him. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already wealthy. For his high school graduation present, William Borden's parents gave their 16-year-old son a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to be a missionary. And one friend expressed disbelief that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. A story often associated with Borden says that in response he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Even though young Borden was wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look like just one more freshman. 
Very quickly, however, Borden's classmates noticed something unusual about him. And it wasn't that he had lots of money. One of them wrote, He came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of the settled purpose and consecration. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. Then entry said simply, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. Borden's missionary call narrowed to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Fixing his eyes on that goal, Borden never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider foreign missionary service. And one of them said of him, He certainly was one of the strongest characters I had ever known. And he put backbone into the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him. And I always felt he was of the stuff martyrs were made of. And heroic missionaries of more modern times. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business and not wasting time in the pursuit of amusement. Although Borden refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates in his senior year than ever before. He presided over the huge student missionary conference held at Yale and served as president of the Honor Society of Phi Beta Kappa. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers. It has been reported that in his Bible, Bill Borden wrote two more words. No retreats. William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. When he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. Because he was hoping to work with Chinese Muslims, he stopped first in Egypt to study Arabic. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. When the news of William White and Borden's Death was cabled back to the U.S. The story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. As the story has it, prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible and underneath the words no reserves and no retreats is reported to have written no regrets no reserve no retreat no regrets in wisdom Solomon wrote in Proverbs 30 verses 8 through 9 remove falsehood and lies far from me give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with the food allotted to me Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Jesus told us, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures, for your word. That speaks as a two-edged sword. Father, I pray that it will penetrate our hearts. And you will lead us near to you that, that you will be preeminent in our hearts and our minds. Father, help us to see false teaching. Help us to see our own desire for the things of this world, for wealth, for security, for comfort, for pleasure. 
May we give that all up for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.